The Glasgow Climate Summit is underway, and yet again, the United States government has failed to meet the challenge, coming up with only the woefully inadequate measures contained in Biden's social spending framework agreement. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to today's episode of In the News, our Tuesday show on the socialist program with Brian Becker. It's November 2nd, 2021. This is an in-depth look at the biggest stories in the news right now, today, and this week. We look beyond the headlines and expose the distortions in the corporate-owned media. Starting this week, video episodes of our Thursday show, The Real Story, will be available with our new partner, Breakthrough News, on youtube.com slash breakthroughnews. Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern. We're excited that this Breakthrough News partnership will expand the reach of the show. If you enjoy our show, please support this independent programming by going to patreon.com slash the socialist program and subscribing. I'm Nicole Roussel, here with Esther Ibarum, Walter Smolarik, and our host, Brian Becker. Esther Ibarum is also the host of the radio show and podcast On the Ground at onthegroundshow.org. Make sure to check out On the Ground, which comes out weekly on Fridays. Brian, where do you want to start today? Well, first of all, I want to let our audience know that we were so excited to be back in a studio all together. We've been working remotely during COVID, but we've created a new studio in Washington, D.C. We were able to record today's show last night. It was about 100 minutes, you know, more than an hour and a half of programming And then we had a catastrophic technical problem such that our sound engineer, John Preisner, who worked tirelessly to try to fix it, still could not. So we're re-recording our show, and it's a little bit shorter because we're doing it late, but we wanted to make sure that In the News came out this week as it does every week. So again, a big technical problem. We were able to fix it and now be able to bring all of you this program, but just a few hours later than normal. Let's start with the big news, which of course is Glasgow. It is climate change or, you know, environmental catastrophe. I was looking at yesterday's New York Times and the headline, I don't know how the headline writer or the editor could do this with a straight face, but here it is. Biden insists U.S. is ready to lead globe on climate. Talks open in Glasgow. Okay, no, Joe Biden just agreed with Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema and the Republican Party to remove from his own Build Back Better legislative program the parts in the program that would have a mild, I want to emphasize the word mild, impact on climate change. They took that out. So he's not ready to lead the globe. He's not ready to lead anything. And then today's New York Times, Tuesday, November 2nd, Biden seeks boost in oil while urging emissions cuts. Okay, did you get that? Biden seeks boost in oil. Here's the first couple of sentences. And then, Esther, I want to get your comments. President Biden told a global climate summit on Monday, 
quote, we only have a brief window before us, close quote, to reduce the emissions from burning oil, gas, and coal that pose an existential threat to humanity. Well, that's all true. But only days earlier, he was urging the world's largest oil producers to pump more of the fossil fuels that are warming the planet. The incongruity was on center stage, both at the Global Climate Summit currently taking place in Scotland and in Rome this past weekend during a gathering of the leaders of the 20 largest economies. So here we have a situation where the leaders of the capitalist world are coming together in Glasgow. China and Russia are not present. They're promising that they're going to close the window before the existential threat of climate catastrophe takes down the human race and all other living things on the planet. They're going to move. And yet at the same time, Biden took out the modest provision within the Build Back Better bill in response to the demands of the right wing, which is most of the U.S. Senate. And he's also demanding that, you know, oil producers produce more oil. And by the way, a major story in ABC yesterday about how Enbridge Corporation in Canada that's building the Line 3 pipeline is paying all the police departments to arrest, to brutalize, I mean, literally brutalize in the most disgusting ways environmental activists and indigenous people who are trying to stop Line 3, which is pumping more unnecessary oil straight through the headwaters of the Mississippi and in defiance of the indigenous people and their treaty rights. And the indigenous communities don't want this oil. They don't want to destroy their land and their lakes. And yet it's the cops working really as private security for Enbridge, being paid by Enbridge who are arresting and brutalizing these protesters. So here we have it, Esther. It's kind of like the perfect picture of what's wrong with capitalism, what's wrong with U.S. capitalism, and what's wrong with the U.S. system of governance. Right. Well, I think it's just another example of the U.S. being on the world stage. It's kind of like the old story about the emperor's new clothes. And everyone can see that the emperor is naked, but he thinks he has on these fine clothes. <laughs> so it's like a story we tell children. But obviously, the lesson has been lost on the U.S. And most of the capitalist leaders who spoke at the opening of the climate summit yesterday. So one of the important articles that we read to prepare for today's show was an essay written by Michael Moore. And I think it's so apropos, even relating to Glasgow, what's happening in Glasgow, because you know, he talked about how the whole world is really laughing at the U.S. And it's not they're not laughing at us because of, you know, the fact that Biden couldn't get his Build Back Better legislation passed or they're not laughing at us because the progressives are insisting on progressive reforms and Build Back Better and and refuse to be pushed around. That's not the reason. And that's not the reason why the Virginia race is close. They're laughing at us because here you have the United States president in Glasgow promising that he's going to be a leader in climate when he can't even get his own legislation passed here. And he is, on the other hand, telling people to pump more oil. 
oil. You know, people are looking at the example of the United States in terms of vaccine distribution, how we have refused to share vaccines across the world. So they're saying, how in the world are they going to be a leader in terms of climate and ensuring that the whole globe is protected when they couldn't even protect our own people they're not even taking care of their own people in terms of, of health care, paid leave, all these other essential human rights that people all over the world have, but we don't have. So how can the United States be a leader? Right. You know, Michael Moore's piece is so interesting because not only did Biden take out the provisions and build back better that had an impact or potential impact on the economy, but, you know, they took out free community college. They took out important parts of Medicare expansion. They took out all the parts of the bill that were very popular, very necessary for huge parts of the working class. So Michael Moore says every one of the EU countries, the major industrial capitalist countries, has universal free health care, free or nearly free college, paid family leave for at least four months. That, too, was taken out of this bill, as you mentioned, Esther complete care of all the elderly, robust funding of schools, all sorts of economic and social help for the jobless and the poor. Workers enjoy mandatory paid vacations with a minimum of four weeks. Women having full equal rights, including abortion and birth control, which are free and easily accessible in all but two of the EU countries, Malta and Poland. So Michael Moore is making the argument that Climate change is one front, but on all of these fronts, the U.S., the richest country in the world, the leading capitalist power in the world, the most powerful military in the world, is a complete laughingstock because of the way the U.S. capitalist class and the U.S. government and the two ruling class parties fail on all of these fronts. Walter, I mean, Biden has surrendered so much and he has surrendered without a fight. It was truly a pathetic display. I mean, truly a pathetic display. I mean, he was actually praising Joe Manchin in the media. I mean, he was saying, Joe's not such a bad guy. And they were engaging, the Biden administration was engaging in a purely backroom, behind-the-scenes strategy. And so no wonder that the right-wing Democrats came out in front, on top in that arrangement, because, you know, they have their vote. It's an evenly divided Senate, and the Democrats need every vote. And if they're not willing to resort to, you know, one of the many tools that they have at their disposal to place actual political pressure on primarily Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema, then they have all the leverage. They can simply turn up their noses and say, no, I'm not going to vote for this bill. And so because they weren't threatened with primary challenges, because those senators weren't threatened with a loss of campaign funds from national fundraising vehicles, they weren't threatened with you know, legislative exile and the loss of their committee seats because they weren't threatened, you know, really by mass action, even though there were some, you know, very important attempts to organize. Walter, just on that, I mean, if any of them had called for a million people, a march for a million people in Washington for free community college, a higher minimum wage, family leave, expanded health care for the elderly, if there was a call from these ruling class institutions a million people would have come because, you know, this is so popular. 
Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I completely agree with that. But but instead, Biden's agreed to cut all of those programs to, you know, slash the aid for affordable housing, for instance, in half, like we were talking about earlier, get rid of the clean electricity production program, the most important piece of the climate section of the legislation totally, totally killed. And yeah, I mean, just going back to the climate for a second, you know, these summits happen on a regular basis. And it's always the same basic script. I mean, the world leaders get together, they make very urgent sounding speeches. And then the situation does not fundamentally change. The planet continues to warm, the climate continues to change, natural disasters intensify. I mean, it's not like they don't know the scale of the problem. Like, for instance, this is from Antonio Guterres, the Secretary General of the United Nations. This is what he said at the Glasgow summit. Enough of brutalizing biodiversity. Enough of killing ourselves with carbon. Enough of treating nature like a toilet. Enough of burning and drilling and mining our way deeper. We are digging our own graves. And this is the head of the United Nations. This is the Secretary General of the United Nations. It's not like they don't know the type of crisis the planet and the people are in, but there's just a couple things that they absolutely need to do that they are essentially unable to because of the structure of the capitalist system. I would say it differently. I would say not unable to do, unwilling to do because they are the servants of capital. They are the servants of capital. I mean, that's the whole point of why we need revolution and why we need socialism. They could do it, but they won't do it. Oh, that's absolutely true. There's plenty of wealth. There's plenty of technological know-how available. And that's been the case for a long time. Sure, they could do it, but they're refusing to do it. And they'd rather see the planet die than do it. One of those things is to completely reorganize how energy is produced on the planet. And that would mean the elimination, the expropriation of the oil and natural gas and coal capitalists. Their enterprise is destroying the planet and it has to end. And by the way, those capitalist enterprises could end without affecting the living standards of the workers who they exploit one bit. The ill-gotten wealth of those planet-killing capitalists could be used to not only fund the planet's transition to clean energy, it could also guarantee that no coal miners or oil rig workers or any other worker employed in or around that industry lose either their job or lose their income. They could have an absolute job or income guarantee with all those hundreds of billions, trillions of dollars a year that go into this climate-killing industry. I like Walter's expression, planet-killing capitalists. <laughs> Speaking of the planet-killing capitalists, and I agree with him, I don't actually think that's hyperbole. And again, speaking to why there actually is the need, the imperative need for revolution in the United States, even though this is an achievable goal to move to renewable energy sources, not only the capitalists who have a direct interest in maximizing profits by continuing to produce and use oil and gas and coal, but just think of the form of government. You have the Supreme Court of the United States, Supreme Court, which you know Eugene Debs, the Socialist Party candidate who ran for president four times, but in 1912 called for the abolition of the U.S. Senate and the abolition of the Supreme Court, which I agree with him. I think that should happen. But here you have the Supreme Court, nine rich, begowned corporate lawyers, or in some cases, law professors, lifetime appointees. Listen to this headline from the Wall Street Journal. Supreme Court to consider 
EPA, that's the Environmental Protection Agency, Supreme Court to consider EPA's authority to limit carbon emissions from power plants. So yeah, the coal companies have gone to lower state courts to challenge that the EPA does not have the right, does not have broad latitude to regulate emissions. And so here you have, on one level, Biden saying it's an existential threat, the UN Security General Secretary saying we're digging our own graves. And in America, you have nine begown corporate rich lifetime appointing saying, yeah, we're going to hear a case about whether the EPA even has the authority to regulate emissions. And this is, of course, because this system is based on profit. In what other system would the Environmental Protection Agency not be protecting the environment, making sure that industry is second to making sure that we don't all die in you know a fiery hell in 100 years? Esther, I think you've got the details on this you know, incredible case and this incredible headline. Right. So what I find interesting is that the court is only now hearing the case five years after then-President Obama announced a plan to implement these more stringent controls on emissions as part of the U.S. pledge to cut greenhouse gases during previous climate conferences. And so the EPA back in 2015 called for a 32 percent cut in power plant carbon dioxide emissions by 2030 from 2005 levels. But in a move that most people watching the court said was unprecedented, the court blocked these new climate regulations in February of 2016 before they could even be implemented. Even lawyers challenging the EPA rule said it was the first time that the Supreme Court actually stayed a regulation when the head of government, the president, actually tried to reduce the reliance on coal-fired power plants, which the U.S. has relied on for more than a century now. So the Obama-era rules had been blocked by legal challenges from 26 states, industry groups, and others that cited concerns, including the cost of compliance and the EPA's authority to enact such a sweeping change. You know, and the EPA is, as you said, our agency that is here to empower, to protect our air, our water, you know, the land pollution, soil pollution, toxic sites, you know. So if they don't have the authority to do their job, then, you know, what are we talking about, right? So, of course, you know, the Democrats lost the White House that year. Trump came in and put in new regulations that allowed corporations to pollute more, that allowed cars to pollute more. And he even attempted to revive the coal industry, you know, replacing rules that sought to, you know, mandate the shift, you know, away from dirty energy to cleaner sources like, you know, wind and solar. And so what happened is that earlier this year, a federal appeal court, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia right here, actually vacated Trump's rules. And that was in January, just before Biden took office. And so Trump could not appeal. But it is only now that an elected leader may have four whole years to try to create and implement a rule that corporations must adhere to to cut emissions, the Supreme Court <laughs> has found the will to scrutinize this rule, to give it more attention and actually perhaps undermine it again. And I don't know if you saw, Brian, the headline in today's New York Times that perhaps because Biden sees that he is such 
a laughing stock, you know, at Glasgow. And in terms of these other benefits that we don't have, that he's, you know, putting forth new suggested rules to cut methane emissions. Yeah, I, I did notice that. And of course, that has to happen urgently. I mean, you know, methane, 3% of all of the natural gas that's harvested, 3%, which is a huge amount. I don't have the numbers right in front of me, but it's huge, is actually released directly by the producers into the environment. I mean, that's part of the production process. I want to go because we're going to go quickly here today in our shorter version of In the News I want to go to another quick story. We want to end with a sort of a preview of a larger show that we're going to do about January 6th, which we've been doing research on and we're getting ready for. So we're going to end with a brief preview of that. But Nicole, I want to turn to another set of stories, really big stories that need to be highlighted. Certainly, we want to highlight them. As Walter said, the planet-killing capitalists are doing just that. They're destroying the planet, destroying the environment, destroying human life through their putting profit above the need to go to renewable energy sources. But then we have the servants of the planet killing capitalists, and those would be the police who have been given a license to kill. The only part of the population that only has to say, I was afraid, you scared me, so I killed you. And I have a right to kill you. I have a right to do anything to you because as long as I assert that I feared for my life, even if I was fearing for my life when I stopped your car because it had a broken taillight, I'm going to be exonerated. This is a major story in the New York Times. Again, we're talking about capitalism as a global system, but U.S. capitalism is a particular kind of capitalism, uh, a particular kind of racist police state. And these articles, which don't really draw the conclusion fully, the the anti-capitalist conclusion, they do tell an important story about what's really going on with the cops and with a vast part of the population here in the United States. That's right, Brian. And the other component of this I want to emphasize, too, is that there's a series of these stories in the New York Times. The New York Times did their own set of investigative reports. And I think it's very clear to all of us that these reports and these articles would not be major features in the New York Times if the massive uprising against racism and against all of these police killings and police terror hadn't happened within the last few years. I think that's really driving this kind of reporting, which is really good to make people sit up and notice. So these reports were on violence and terrorism and policing. And we all very well know names like Sandra Bland, Walter Scott, and Philando Castile, all of whom were stopped for some trumped up reason based on owning fines of some kind or fees. And then they were killed by police. These names are now you know, infamous, notorious, and have been a clear part of the uprising against police terror over the past few years. And these new reports identified, this was the main statistic that I think is so chilling. This new report by the New York Times identified more than 400 other killings just like this from the past five years, more than 400 other killings by police in this same manner from the last five years. And this, again, the same manner means officers and police killing unarmed drivers or passengers who were not wielding a gun, they were not wielding a knife, and they were not under pursuit for a violent crime. The rate, if you divide that out, 400 killings, more than 400 killings from the past five years, that's a rate of more than one a week. 
So a lot of these cases that we're talking about, like Sandra Bland and Walter Scott and Philando Castile and so many others, like I said, are, you know, based on someone owing some fine or some ticket, you know, sometimes $10, $40, these small amounts of money and fueling the culture. I'm going to read from the New York Times report right now. Fueling the culture of traffic stops is the federal government which issues over $600 million a year in highway safety grants that subsidize ticket writing. Although federal officials say they do not impose quotas, at least 20 states have evaluated police performance on the number of traffic stops per hour. For instance, in Arkansas, the goal was three vehicle stops per hour during grant-funded patrols, while in Madison, South Dakota, officers were required to, quote, obtain two citations per grant hour, unquote. So essentially, the federal government is giving localities and states these grants, and these localities and states are then literally requiring their cops to go out and stop people. And again, we know what these stops often lead to. For all the billions that are spent to promote ticket writing by police, and I think this is a really important thing to say, I think most of us already know this, but you know, all of this funding, all these grants, all of these stops that have ended in so many killings... I'm quoting from the report now, quote, there is little evidence that it has helped achieve the grant's primary goal, reducing fatal car crashes, unquote. So not only has it not helped with the car crashes we have that are so terrible and fatal on the highway and, you know, in towns, but it has increased police going up to people's cars and getting in trouble and killing people. Another element of the Times investigation highlights the intense aggression and escalation that police engage in totally unnecessarily. I'm quoting from the report, dozens of encounters appeared to turn on what criminologists describe as officer-created jeopardy. Officers regularly and unnecessarily place themselves in danger by standing in front of fleeing vehicles or reaching inside car windows, then fired their weapons in what they later said was self-defense. Frequently, officers also appear to exaggerate the threat. In many cases, local police officers, state troopers, or sheriff's deputies responded with outsized aggression to disrespect or disobedience, a driver talking back, revving an engine, or refusing to get out of a car, what officers sometimes call contempt of cop, unquote. So there's this other component of which we have all seen anytime we have encountered police of this, well, you know, I'm the adult in this situation and anyone who's not a cop has to obey am I every word. One example of this that's so disgusting, quote, a Tennessee sheriff ordered his deputies to fire at a motorist with a suspended license in 2017. Don't ram him, shoot him. He later recounted saying, according to a body camera recording, knocking the man off the highway might, quote, tear my cars up, unquote. I think people should read these reports I'm going to add just one more, I think, really important thing here, which is that, you know, police always like to say, well, you know, traffic stops are really dangerous for us. Our job is so dangerous. Like, you know, we're going to get shot at any time. We have to be prepared anytime we go to a car door. It's dangerous for us. But this report actually completely debunks that. Quote, because the police pull over so many cars and trucks, tens of millions each year, an officer's chances of being killed at any vehicle stop are less than one in 3.6 million, excluding accidents two studies have shown. Less than one in 3.6 million. I looked into a somewhat comparable number. According to a 2019 study published in the Journal Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences of the United States, over the course of their life, quote, 
about one in every 1,000 black men can expect to be killed by police. So police saying, I can't go to a car window without my gun drawn. I have to be standing in front of a car lest they flee. Your chances as a cop of getting killed at a vehicle stop, less than one in 3.6 million, according to two different studies. And if you're just a black man, just existing, just living every day as a black man, you're in your life course, you have one in every 1,000 chances of being killed by police. Amazing. Let's go to our final story. Esther, we have talked about the need to continue looking at, investigating, and exposing what happened on January 6th. That was a mob. The mob has always played a very major role in American politics. Some people, including some people in the left, are discounting the significance of the mob. They say, well, look, these are just individuals. They were along for the ride. There's a bunch of clowns. They weren't really part of an insurrection. You know, the same at lynch parties, frankly, where the mob, and we're not talking about a few incidents, we're talking about a dominant part of American politics. The mob included a lot of people who were just along for the ride, people who would treat the lynching as part of a picnic setting. They weren't the real lynchers. They didn't get the rope. They didn't get the fire. They didn't get the guns, but they were along for the ride. But we know that what happened on January 6th was an attempt by a mob directed by the president of the United States, aided by organized fascist organizations like the Oath Keepers, the Three Percenters, the Proud Boys, to overturn the certification of an election because they didn't want the results of the election. They didn't want Donald Trump to no longer be president. That's what this was all about. That's what Trump tried to do. And he tried to convince Pence to do it, and Pence didn't do it. And thus they you know, marched and then invaded the Capitol and were looking for Pence. A major story coming out in the Washington Post about how all of the government intelligence agencies were fully aware of the danger of thousands or tens of thousands of people, including many bringing weapons and talking about the need to carry out an assault on the seat of government. Anyway, we want to just at least preview this story for our audience, and we're going to come back and do a deep dive about January 6th. But let's just give a preview. Right. So we want to just bounce off of this major package that the Washington Post published talking about red flags before January 6th, what happened that day and what happened afterward. And the before package focused on the efforts of one Homeland Security official, Donnell Harvin, to address the growing reports of a planned convergence on the Capitol that day at 1 p.m. <laughs> like all these red flags had very specific information. And one of the things we wanted to point out was that in that piece, there was a meeting of all these fusion centers across the country about two days before January 6th, hundreds of people joined the call. And he said, you know, there hadn't been that type of participation in a long time, like since 9-11, when these centers were set up. And so despite all of this organization, which has in the past gone after the Occupy movement, other progressive movements, they somehow could not foresee the trouble that was going to happen at the Capitol that day. So the other thing that is reported in this package, as well as in much of corporate media this week, that we'll definitely you know, get to in more detail, is really how the January 6th Select Committee is revealing how 
at the White House and at something called a command center at the Willard Hotel, you know, people like John Eastman, a lawyer for Trump, Steve Bannon, really Giuliani, they were really plotting this whole thing and really watching it unfold. The latest tidbit to come out is the fact that Eastman told Pence's crew that the reason why there was a riot that day is because Pence would not do what they wanted him to do, which is refuse to certify the election. So all of this stuff is really coming out at the very highest level of government. You know, maybe there were some clowns and buffoons there, people who wandered into the Capitol who didn't intend to wind up there when they came to D.C. And I know from personal conversations that there were people who said, hey, if I had known that they were going to do that, I wouldn't have come. There were all kinds of people in D.C. on January 6th. But it's also true that this was being planned and calculated at the various highest levels of the White House. Indeed. And this was Trump's plan. I mean, the fact that all of these individuals, some of them are pretty hapless individuals and just along for the ride, they were arrested, even though the police let them take the Capitol building and then walk them out, sometimes holding their hands as they walked out the door. So a lot of the lower rank and file hapless individuals got arrested. The perpetrator of this effort to undo an election was Donald Trump. I mean, this was Trump's plan, his lawyer's plan. You know, all of them were planning to use every available resource to prevent Joe Biden from becoming president. And the mob was an auxiliary to that. And for those in the so-called left who are minimizing and saying this is no big deal, maybe they should just take a look at U.S. history and look at what the role of the mob. And when I say the mob, I'm talking about the white supremacist racist mob. And if there's one or two black people or Latino people in the midst, it doesn't change the composition of what that group was and what they were trying to accomplish. And also, Brian, I think it's really important to talk about the aftermath, the residue of January 6th and other ways, and that is the right's empowerment, that they can use the power of the mob and use violence to intimidate people. You see the residue of it at the school board meetings that we're talking about, Mm -hmm. at violence and threats and intimidation of election officials. You know, we had a recent moment that's gone viral on video of a man standing up at a Turning Point USA conference talking about when, when are we going to be able to start using our guns? At this point, we're living under corporate and medical fascism. This is tyranny. When do we get to use the guns? No, and I'm, and, I, and I'm not, that's not a joke. I'm not saying it like that. I mean, literally, where's the line? How many elections are they going to steal before we kill these people? So this is the residue that I see that is very important. And it goes back to what you're talking about, the history of the mob, the use of the mob to perpetuate the big lie, to put large portions of the population under threat of intimidation and danger and violence. And the fact that they want to use that violence and use that threat to be a part of the political life of this country now. Yeah. And just to make the point, and we're going to end on this, Esther, the point that you're making, the residue is that the right wing is emboldened. They feel, you know, that they can be openly racist, openly white supremacist. And And that people are scared of them mm -hmm, and that they can use violence. And right now, Kyle Rittenhouse, one of these people, one of these fascists, a white supremacist, is on trial and he's becoming the magnet for 
political support, financial support from all of these fascists and white supremacists. And he traveled to Kenosha, Wisconsin, after the police shooting of Jacob Blake out in the open that led the mass protests. And he came to Kenosha and he brought his attack weapon and he killed two people, two anti-racist activists and wounded another. And he's on trial and he's being treated as a hero by the same people who promoted January 6th and still promote January 6th. Right. So for those people who think this is a laughing matter, that this is small potatoes, take a look at American history because American history isn't simply the past. The past is the prologue and progressive working class socialist forces have to know that right now we're fighting against the capitalist class and we're also fighting against the blossoming of a new fascist movement in the United States. It's no laughing matter. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Starting in November, video episodes of our Thursday show, The Real Story, will be available with our new partner, Breakthrough News, on youtube.com slash Breakthrough News. We're excited that this breakthrough partnership will expand the reach of the show. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker.